Amen. I invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word written for you and for me this morning. Uh, While you're turning to Numbers chapter 6, there's the curveball for you this morning. Numbers chapter 6 in the Old Testament, not Luke chapter 1. Uh, Let me say what a delight it is, albeit unexpectedly, to be with you this morning. Uh, As Danny mentioned, my name is Carlton Wynn. I serve on the pastoral staff at Westminster PCA over on the other side of town, and we are grateful for our partnership in the gospel uh, with Smyrna Presbyterian Church, and it's a joy to be with you this morning. Let us turn our attention to God's Word from Numbers chapter 6. A sermon text this morning will be from verse 22 through the end of the chapter at verse 27. Familiar words to you, but let's give our attention to them now. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Amen. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer as we ask for our Father's help as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it is breathed out by the Spirit sent from heaven. We thank you that it is useful for teaching and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We thank you that by your word we know the blessing that is poured out upon us savingly in Christ Jesus, the one crucified and raised, the one returning in glory and in power, the one through whom we come to you in the heavenly places this morning. Would you take your word? Would you use it to bless us in Christ? forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine putting a Bible into the hands of a brand new Christian, somebody who has just come to faith. They, they don't know what's in the Bible, but they turn in the Bible that you've given them to the table of contents. I think this person could be forgiven for considering skipping the section of the Old Testament titled Numbers. Uh, The title of this Old Testament book does not exactly thrill the soul. Years ago, I remember speaking with a college pastor, uh, telling how one day he met up with a student who was majoring in farm management. The young man came to lunch with an 800-page textbook under his arm, and on the cover there was one word, soil. The book of Numbers can strike some Christians like that. It can seem like a a tedious and a confusing and a challenging read. Maybe you've gotten bogged down in the book of Numbers as you've tried to read through the Bible in a year. What's really surprising is that even scholars and commentators are puzzled by this Old Testament book, primarily because it contains so many different kinds of material. You open up to the book of Numbers and you find a census, a count of Israel's army. You find the resulting statistics. By the way, this is how we get our English title, Numbers. More kinds of material, laws and rituals, lists 
of Israel's encampments, poetry, accounts of rebellion, prophecies, wars, all of it arranged without any seeming structure to it. And all of this has led one Old Testament scholar to call numbers, and I quote, the junk room of the priestly code. You see what this scholar is saying. He's saying that the book of Numbers is a bit like that drawer in your kitchen. Maybe that hallway in your closet where you have things that you don't know what to do with. That they're too precious to throw away, but you don't exactly have a place for them. So that everything in the history of Israel that didn't have a place anywhere else, this scholar is saying, just got shoved into the book of Numbers. What are we to think of this approach to this Old Testament book? Well, I think it's a a tragic misreading of this book. This is a book that's inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, for our good. And a closer reading of the book of Numbers shows that there actually is a structure to it. There is an arrangement and a purpose to it. You see, the book of Numbers picks up in Israel's history after God's nation's redemption from slavery in Egypt. God has brought his chosen people to the foot of Mount Sinai where he's given them his law where he's told them that they would be his holy nation. And for the first 10 chapters in Numbers, God is organizing this nation into a holy army. That's what they were, with God himself in their midst. He's organizing them because at the foot of Mount Sinai, he prepares to lead his people through the treacherous wilderness all the way to the land that he had promised them. This is what the book of Numbers describes. It describes Israel's journey from the foot of Mount Sinai all the way to the borders of the promised land. In other words, when you're reading the book of Numbers, you're you're seeing God fulfilling the promise that he made to the patriarch Abraham so many years earlier. You remember these words from Genesis 12. God says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And he says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so it's no wonder that when we open up to the early chapters of Numbers, we find this word of blessing. As I mentioned, these are familiar words. You usually hear these words at the end of a worship service. Verses 24 through 26 is a benediction. Literally, a good word. And this benediction reminds us that Numbers is no junk room. Numbers is a storehouse of riches. Maybe you've heard these words, worship service after worship service, but you've never actually known what to do with them. Well, this morning, unexpectedly, it is my prayer that we would take out this rich jewel out of the storehouse of this Old Testament book, that we would, that we would examine it, that we would, in fact, place it on the mantle of our lives, and that we would treasure it all of our days. To do that, I want to look first at the background of the benediction, and then we'll examine the blessing of the benediction. What exactly does it say? And then we'll look at the bestowal of the benediction through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first, a little more on the background of the benediction. As you can see, a benediction is not so much a prayer to God as it is a pronouncement from God to his people. The person pronouncing the benediction from God, of course, asks God to do something in the benediction so 
So there is a kind of implied prayer in the benediction, but the primary direction is from God to his people. Today, the benediction is usually spoken by a minister of the gospel, but we see in our text this morning that that this benediction in the Old Testament is to be given by the priests. Verse 22 identifies them as Aaron and his sons. For this reason, this benediction is sometimes called the Aaronic benediction. Not the, not the ironic benediction, but the Aaronic benediction. Aaron and his sons were priests. They were a subset of the tribe of Levi. You can remember that all priests were Levites, but, but not all Levites were priests. Aaron and his sons were specially selected out of the tribe of Levi to be priests. They alone could enter into the tabernacle of God. They alone could could handle the sacrifices of God. And the priest's job was to represent the people to God. God had ordained another office in the Old Testament, that of prophet, to speak from God to the people. But the priest's job was the other direction. Priests represented the people to God. But here in our text, notice that these priests... These representatives get to do something special. After interceding for the people, after offering sacrifices on behalf of the people, God wants these priests to turn around, as it were, and pronounce God's blessing to the people. And so we read in verses 22 and 23, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel you shall say to them. Well, what is the purpose of what they say? Well, surely in context, God wants Israel to know that throughout their pilgrimage to the promised land, God's own blessing would be upon them. He wants them to understand that no matter what they face in the wilderness, no matter how many may fall away, no matter what obstacles may come, God's blessing will rest upon them until he brings them all the way home safely to the land of complete satisfaction and total provision and rest. This much is clear. As God calls Aaron and his sons to pronounce the blessing, it is God himself who gives it. As we look just at the surface of the benediction in verses 24 through 26, we see the name The covenant name of God, the Lord, is repeated three times. God himself is the source of blessing. And as we look at this benediction, we learn that this God is a God of sovereign control and wise order. Each line of the blessing contains two verbs, but the lines are different lengths. Notice, even in our English Bibles, verse 24 is the shortest line. It begins as a stream. It builds in the second line. And then the third line becomes a mighty river of blessing. If we had eyes to to read the Hebrew of this benediction, we would see even more something of the wisdom of God because, because the first line of this benediction has three Hebrew words. The second line has five Hebrew words. And the third line has seven Hebrew words. Even the syllables are orderly arranged. The first line has 12 syllables in Hebrew. The second line has 14 syllables. And the third line has 16 syllables. So too with the, with the consonants. 
The first line has 15 consonants. The second line has 20 consonants. And the third line has 25 consonants. Maybe this is a delight to the engineers among Smyrna Prez. It would have been a delight to the Hebrew mind who would have marveled at the wisdom of the construction of this benediction. But what surely would have delighted the people of God most is that these words are not merely about a blessing, but they actually communicate a blessing. Look at what verse 27 says. God says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Right away, this is important for us as the people of God today because, well, because Israel's history is our history. These are the people of God. These are those to whom God revealed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Israel is the church of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. They were a people who struggled to follow God, struggled to trust in God, even as they held the promises of the gospel in hand. But even more, we learn, particularly in the book of Hebrews, that just as God was leading this nation to a physical land of promise, so too God is bringing the church today, the church of Jesus Christ, through the wilderness of this fallen world to a land of heavenly rest, a land of which the holy land of Canaan only faintly pointed. We are a church united to Jesus Christ, destined for a land of complete satisfaction and total rest in the new heavens and the new earth. And this means that the same benediction that God gave Israel then and there is a benediction for us here and now. So brothers and sisters, we need to know what this benediction is. What is the blessing of the benediction. This is the second thing that we need to understand. What, what is it that God tells us as we make our pilgrimage through this world wrecked by sin, as we look for meaning and satisfaction in this life, even as we were made for the God of heaven? Well, verses 24 through 26 give us, I think, a three-part explanation of what it means to be blessed by God. The first aspect of the divine blessing is God's protection. His protection. Look at verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. Of course, the, the first verb is a general word of blessing. That's what the benediction is going to unfold. Blessing is, is a positive outcome of living in covenant with God. But let's move to the second verb in verse 24. To keep. This verb means to watch over to protect, to guard. This word is used early in our Bibles. You remember when God places Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. Adam was tasked as our first father to guard that holy realm from anything that was unclean, anything that would thwart the, the purposes of God. And tragically, our first father failed and failed miserably. But the resounding note of the Scriptures is that God never fails God never fails as the keeper of the vineyard of his people. He is an alert watchman. He is a vigilant keeper. Don't you love that Psalm 121 where this same verb is used again and again? Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. 
course, as we turn the pages into the New Testament and understand what it means to be united to Christ in a fallen world, we understand that this safekeeping by the Lord does not always mean our comfort. Temporal blessings like family and health and home can vanish in a moment. But the sovereignly bestowed benediction of God reminds us that even these losses are ordered by the sovereign wisdom and control of God. God has ordered all of our affairs in union with Christ for our ultimate blessing. The blessing of being forged into a people who know Him and who love Him. If you're a Christian this morning, God's hand is upon you to bless you and to keep you. You can remember King David As he was fleeing for his life from Saul, he sat down to pen Psalm 57 and he says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. That purpose, of course, again, is not comfort, but it is, we could say, conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is God's ambition for you. That is the good toward which Romans 8.28 says, all things are heading for those who know God and are called according to His purpose. So great is the keeping of God, even in the face of death, that that Paul says death itself gets transformed for the Christian into gain. It is the end of all terrors. It is the gateway to paradise, as Charles Spurgeon said, as, as Christians are made perfect in holiness and are transformed into the realm of glory. This is the kind of protection that God gives to all those who are blessed by Him. Well, the second aspect of God's blessing is God's favorable presence with us, His presence with us. Look at verse 25. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now, in Scripture, to to have the Lord's face turned to you is to enjoy His loving attention. It is to enjoy His favor. And this means that, that the protection that God gives us is not that of a distant bodyguard, but it is the protection of a loving and interested Father for God's face to shine upon you with approval is refreshing. It is renewing. It is restoring. It's like, it's like the sun coming out and warming your face on a cold and dreary day. My wife and I, lived, before we lived in Atlanta, we lived for 10 years in the Northeast, in Philadelphia. Many blessings about living in the Northeast, but by far the hardest challenge for my wife were the winters. We endured many gray, drizzly, cold days in March. And this is a true story. If ever the clouds parted during those months and a sunbeam somehow broke through onto our front yard, my wife would run outside and stand in the midst of that sunbeam with her face to the heavens. So we moved to Atlanta, where it appears God's grace shines all the brighter. When we think about God's grace in the Scriptures, what is His grace? His grace is, is the undeserved love that he bestows upon sinners who otherwise deserve his righteous judgment. When Scripture uses the term grace, it has in view saving grace, redeeming grace, 
grace that overcomes the guilt of our sin, the obstacles of, of sin and death, as God sovereignly and freely blesses us with his favor, and as an expression of his favor gives us his son. And so the psalmist prays in Psalm 31, make your face shine on your servant, save me in your steadfast love. Or Psalm 80, verse 3, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. If you feel like the smile of God is blocked by the clouds of despair and doubt, pray these prayers to God. He delights to hear these prayers. Father, let your face shine on your servant. Well, the final aspect of God's blessing beyond his protection and his presence, it rises like a crescendo and it is God's peace. His peace. Verse 25, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now again, we need to remember that, that like his protection and like his presence, God's Peace in this life does not mean an absence of conflict or pain, though ultimately the peace of God will mean the absence of conflict and pain. In its essence, this word peace is a most comprehensive term. It means to enjoy the fullness of life. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means total satisfaction in the presence of God. The Hebrew word is shalom. And as we survey the richness of this benediction of God, it's almost too much to take in. I mean, how can we sum up all that the scriptures are saying here? To have God's constant safekeeping through his overruling providence, to know his sovereign favor and wonderful deliverance from sin, to have it all undeserved, freely bestowed. How can we describe what it means to have God's majestic smile upon us day and night that yields more and more in our experience a fullness of peace that surpasses anything we could ask for or imagine and to have this blessing come home to our hearts with a threefold emphasis that drives home to us the certainty and strength and fullness of the blessing that God gives his pilgrim people. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you from the scriptures how we can sum it up. It is to say that in blessing us in this way, the God of heaven and earth gives us nothing less than himself. God gives us himself in his blessing. This is the central golden thread throughout the whole of the scriptures. This is the core covenant promise that God makes the church of Jesus Christ. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the blessing of God. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, unpacked what it means for God to say, I will be your God and you will be my people. He says this, it is as if God has said, you shall have as true an interest in all of my attributes for your good as they are mine for my glory. My grace, saith God, shall be yours to pardon you and my power shall be yours to protect you and my wisdom shall be yours to direct you and my goodness shall be yours to relieve you. And my mercy shall be yours to supply you. And my glory shall be yours to crown you. This is a comprehensive promise, says Brooks, for God to be our God. It includes all. Indeed it does. If, if this blessing is true, if God has determined to take himself in hand, as it were, and bestow himself upon an unworthy people, then this benediction 
is the greatest treasure we could ever have. This familiar benediction would be more than a sunbeam on a cold day. It's more than a wish. It's more than a parting word. It's more than a sign that the service is over. This benediction at its core is the very meaning of life. It is life itself. It is the fullness of life bestowed by our God of heaven. It is a blessing that is already dawning in the hearts of the people of God before the heavens open and the glory of God radiantly shines to transform this fallen world into a universe of his glory. And if this is true of this benediction, then the most fundamental question we can ask this morning is how do I receive it? How do I come to know this blessing? How do I live in this benediction day by day? So having seen the background of the benediction and the blessing of the benediction, let's consider the bestowal of this benediction through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it not true that when you think about these three dimensions of the blessing of God, His, his protection and His presence and His peace, all of these things are secured and found in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In terms of God's protection, Jesus Christ has been exalted to be the King of heaven and earth. He is the one who is restraining and conquering all of His and our enemies. He is subduing our unruly sin to Himself through His Word and Spirit. He is the benevolent King who is constraining us to obedience to His Word. He is God's very presence in the flesh. We're approaching a season of Advent when we celebrate Jesus Christ as Emmanuel, as God with us, as the one in whose face we behold, as Paul writes, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And this Christ has poured out His presence upon you and upon me through the Holy Spirit. And in terms of God's peace, Jesus Christ is our peace, is He not? He is the one who has secured our peace with God. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who is and will bring the fullness of peace, comprehensive blessing to the church that He loves. In fact, as we, as we think about the the ironic benediction in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think that this benediction also tells us backhandedly the great cost by which this blessing is bestowed upon you and me through faith in Christ. Because as we think about this blessing, we remember that that blessing is, is simply the positive outcome of life in covenant with God. But of course, Scripture tells us that there's another outcome of life and covenant with God, particularly for those who who break the covenant that God first made with our father Adam. There is another consequence of living before the face of God, and that is the curse of God. In fact, if you reverse every one of these three lines that describe the blessing of God, you get a rather accurate understanding of what it means to be met with the curse of God. What is the curse of God? Well, it goes like this. The Lord curse you and abandon you to yourself. The Lord turn His face away from you in anger and give you exactly what you deserve. The Lord cast you into utter darkness and hand you over to thorough torment. This is the malediction that God 
can bestow in his righteous judgment. This is the malediction that we deserve. This is the malediction that awaits those who choose to stand on their own merit on the final day. And brothers and sisters, this is the word that God spoke. This is the picture that Jesus Christ endured as he died on the cross for sin that was not his own. He endured to the depths the malediction of God in obedience to his Father. Our Savior was plunged into the weeping and the utter darkness and the forsakenness of hell so that the protection and the favorable presence and the comprehensive peace of God could fall upon you and upon me. This means that as we listen to benedictions at the end of worship services, we need to remember that every benediction has been purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. It has come at a tremendous cost. Charles Spurgeon said that it was only after the Old Testament priest conducted the sacrificial ceremony in the Old Testament that he would lift his blood-stained hands to bless the people of God. Is it any wonder that at the end of Luke's gospel, we see Jesus having offered himself as a single sacrifice for all time. He has risen from the dead. He's about to ascend to the Father. And at the end of Luke's gospel, we read these words, and he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Jesus Christ bestowed the benediction of God upon his disciples after rising from the dead. But, but do you also realize that he blessed them as he ascended up into heaven and having been seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven? When we come to him in faith, when we receive and rest in him as he is offered in the gospel, Jesus Christ applies this very benediction to all of his people perpetually. He applies it from the heavenly places as Jesus intercedes for those whom he loves in glory. As his resurrection life pours effectual prayers before the Father, our Savior and shepherd and friend turns around as it were and he perpetually blesses his people from the heavenly sanctuary. Friends, what, what the preacher does at the end of a Sunday morning service is merely echo to your ears the benediction that Jesus Christ is pronouncing from now into eternity. What a wonderful, ordered, sovereign, beautiful, and full benediction our Savior bestows upon the church he loves. Well, how should we respond to this benediction? Let me, let me just give you a few final brief words of encouragement. Words of application that you can apply even before you go home today. As you listen to the benediction at the end of our service today, would you do three things? Number one, would you listen attentively? Listen attentively. Remember that the direction of the benediction, again, is primarily from God to you. And so it's appropriate to lift your eyes to the minister to receive the benediction as a gift from God. Secondly, listen solemnly. Remember that this is a blessing sealed with the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. It is bestowed upon us by our great high priest from heaven. And as we hear the benediction ringing in our ears, we hear the Lord saying, you are mine. May we 
be sure that we are saying back in our hearts, yes, Lord, I am yours through Jesus, my Savior. And then finally, would you leave confidently? Leave confidently. As I mentioned, the form of the blessing actually communicates a blessing through faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 27 says that it is through this benediction he puts his name upon his people. Would you leave this sanctuary knowing first that outwardly you've been named with the name of the triune God in your baptism? And then by the grace of God inwardly, through your saving union with Jesus Christ, we have been named with the name of the Lord. So let us bear that name by the grace and the strength that God supplies. Let us not take that name in vain. Here are words for pilgrim people on the way. God says, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that you shower your blessings down upon us through Jesus Christ. Him that we do not see, yet we love. And we are filled with joy, receiving the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Oh Lord, with your blessing, with your name upon us, let us walk by faith and not yet by sight until the great day when we know the fullness of blessing in your very presence. We pray this in Jesus' name.